All right, welcome to the podcast. Today we'll be talking about psychosis uh, and psychotic disorders, specifically schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. All right, just to start off, let's just give a background briefly on psychosis and delusions. Uh, so psychosis is a general term. Uh, it's used to describe a distorted perception of reality. Uh, it can be a, a symptom of many different things, uh, many different uh, disorders. Uh, those include schizophrenia, uh, delirium, bipolar disorder, uh, depression, substance use, whether that's medication or recreational drugs, uh, and neurocognitive disorders. And I just wanted to give a few examples of substance-induced psychosis uh, because that comes up a lot, you know, when you're in the hospital, you know, whether that be on your psychiatry rotation or in the ED uh, or, you know, even on the floor, sometimes you'll see some of these. So some of the more common drugs that you will see that will cause psychosis uh, include things like uh, steroids. That's a very common one uh, to cause psychosis, you know. Typically, it's someone that has a, a short dose of uh, high-potent steroids that will become acutely psychotic. Certain uh, anesthetics can cause psychosis, uh, antibiotics, anticonvulsants, antihistamines is a very common one, anticholinergics. Antihypertensives, uh, NSAIDs is a very common one uh, as well, and a few others uh, that you will see, but those are the more common ones. As far as substances, you know, like recreational drugs, uh, things such as alcohol, cocaine, hallucinogens such as LSD or ecstasy, MDMA, uh, marijuana, benzodiazepines, uh, barbiturates, inhalants. Uh, and PCP, they can all cause psychosis either during the acute intoxication or withdrawal from the drug. Some of the more common neurocognitive disorders that can cause psychosis include things like uh, CNS disease, so whether that's like a cardiovascular disease or cerebrovascular disease, MS, uh, Alzheimer's is a very common one that can cause psychosis, Parkinson's as well, whether it's due to the Parkinson's or the Parkinson's medication they're taking. Huntington's, uh, tertiary syphilis is another one that uh, you'll be asked about quite a bit. Um, Temporal lobe epilepsy can cause psychosis. Uh, Prion disease, also another common one. And then AIDS uh, is a common one that's asked about as well that can cause psychosis. So those are the more common things that cause psychosis. But, you know, what exactly is psychosis? I couldn't find a real good, you know, set definition of psychosis. There's not, you know, a DSM-5 uh, criteria for psychosis. But uh, one thing that I read uh, that I thought was really good in the first aid for the psychiatry clerkship, uh, their definition of psychosis is, it says it's exemplified by delusions, hallucinations, or severe disorganization of thought or behavior. So basically delusions, hallucinations, and or severe disorganization of thought. And uh, you'll see a lot of people that have delusions. You'll be asked about it a lot, so I want to talk about it. Uh, Delusions are fixed false beliefs uh, that persist despite 
evidence to the contrary. So despite you know you telling them or providing evidence to them that it's not real, uh, they still have this fixed false belief. And that's kind of the buzzword, fixed false beliefs uh, that you'll hear with delusions. And uh, delusions can be categorized as bizarre or non-bizarre. And the difference between the two, a uh, bizarre delusion is this uh, fixed false belief but it's just completely impossible. So, for example, you have someone that comes in who has this fixed false belief that, you know, there are aliens inside them that are controlling their thoughts and actions, you know, with a little joystick or something. Something that's completely just delusional, completely impossible, would never happen in reality, but they have this fixed belief that's bizarre. Uh, a non-bizarre delusion uh, is a false belief that's, you know, it could potentially happen, but it's just not true. So, for example, I had a patient that I'll talk about in a little bit, but he had this fixed false belief that his work was spying on him, that they had, you know, installed cameras in his home and uh, they were spying on him and trying to figure out a way they, they could get rid of him or fire him. Uh, delusions can also be classified into uh, a few different categories other than bizarre versus non-bizarre, and we'll talk about those right now. And they're kind of categorized by themes. Uh, so the first one is delusions of persecution uh, or paranoid delusions. And that's an irrational belief that someone's being persecuted. So my patient, for example, uh, had paranoid delusions that his uh, work was spying on him. Uh, another category, ideas of reference. Uh, so in ideas of reference, uh, you believe that uh, cues in your external environment are uniquely related to you. So, for example, people on the TV are speaking directly to me. Or someone said something on the radio that's directly related to me or for me. Another type of delusion is thought broadcasting, uh, and that's the belief that you know your thoughts can be heard by other people. Uh, similarly, there's thought insertion, uh, where you believe that outside thoughts, like someone else's thoughts, are being placed in your own head. There's also delusions of grandeur, uh, just believing that you have special powers beyond just an everyday person. So, for example, like someone thinks they're a god or something like that. Uh, there's delusions of guilt. You believe that you're guilty, you're responsible for something that you're not. Uh, so, like, I'm responsible for, you know, uh, all the wars that are going on in the world or I'm responsible for, you know, hunger that's going on around the world when, you know, you're not. Uh, and then there's uh, somatic delusions, and that just basically means that you have this belief that you have a certain illness or health condition that you really don't. Uh, so, for example, like, you know, I, someone believes that they for sure have foot cancer or something like that, despite, you know, not having symptoms of foot cancer and not having, they're having like a negative MRI or x-ray or something like that, uh, that clearly shows that they do, do not have this cancer, but they believe it. All right, moving on from delusions, let's talk about illusions and hallucinations. So it's kind of hard to distinguish between the two sometimes, but illusions are, it's just a misinterpretation of, of a real stimulus, an external stimulus that really is there, um, but they just misinterpret it. So for example, someone sees a shadow and they believe it's a CIA agent 
that's, you know, spying on them or like an evil spirit or something like that. Uh, hallucination, on the other hand, is a perception of something without an actual external stimulus. So there's not any like external stimulus that it could explain why they're having these thoughts. There are multiple different types of hallucinations, including auditory hallucinations, visual hallucinations, olfactory hallucinations, and tactile hallucinations. Uh, they're pretty straightforward auditory hallucinations, you know, meaning they're hearing things that aren't, you know, that other people don't hear or aren't there. Visual hallucinations, uh, they're seeing things that uh, uh, you know other people don't see. Olfactory, they're smelling things, uh, and tactile, they're you know feeling things that uh, really aren't there. Uh, auditory hallucinations are most common with schizophrenia. Uh, visual hallucinations are less common in schizophrenia. They're more common in drug intoxication or withdrawal uh, or delirium is another common uh, cause of visual hallucinations. Uh, olfactory hallucinations, they're typically associated uh, with epilepsy. It's typically an aura uh, before they have a seizure. Uh, and then tactile hallucinations, again, are usually secondary to drug abuse or withdrawal, uh, specifically alcohol withdrawal. You'll see that a lot. All right, let's move on to schizophrenia, uh, our first disorder. So schizophrenia, according to uh, first aid for the psychiatry clerkship, they have a great definition. Uh, it's a psychiatric disorder characterized by a constellation of abnormalities in thinking, emotion, and behavior. The DSM-5 criteria for schizophrenia uh, include two or more of uh, these following symptoms present for at least one month, uh, and they include delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, grossly disorganized or catatonic behavior, and negative symptoms. And it has to be, there has to be at least one of the first three. So there has to be one of delusions, hallucinations, or disorganized speech uh, to qualify. And these symptoms must cause significant social, occupation, or functional uh, deterioration. So they really have to affect your everyday life to qualify. Uh, duration of illness uh, needs to be at least six months. And that can include, you know, the prodromal phase uh, that we'll talk about later. Uh, so the actual symptoms need to be present for at least one month, but uh, the illness needs to manifest itself for at least six months to qualify for schizophrenia. Uh, and then obviously that the uh, symptoms are not due to effects of a substance or another medical condition. Uh, and that's the DSM-5 criteria for schizophrenia. As for the epidemiology of schizophrenia, it's rare, but not too rare. It uh, affects about 0.5% of the population over their lifetime. Uh, men and women are equally affected, but uh, present differently. So men tend to present, you know, kind of in the early to mid-20s, women a little bit later in their late 20s. Uh, men usually have more negative symptoms and poor outcomes uh, as compared to women. Schizophrenia typically presents uh, in your 20s, 30s, maybe 40s. Uh, it's pretty rare before or after that uh, to present. And if you see signs of schizophrenia, uh, you know, before age 20 or after age like 50, you want to think of uh, potential other causes of psychosis and not schizophrenia. There's a pretty strong genetic predisposition for schizophrenia, uh, including like a 50% concordance rate uh, among monozygotic twins. 
a 40% risk of inheritance if both parents have schizophrenia, and a 12% risk if one first-degree relative is affected. You'll come across or be asked about the uh, downward drift hypothesis uh, in regards to schizophrenia. Basically, it's saying that you know lower socioeconomic uh, groups have higher rates of schizophrenia. And the downward drift hypothesis uh, is basically saying that people suffering from schizophrenia have a hard time functioning in society, you know, can't get great jobs, can't hold up those jobs, uh, have a difficult time interacting with people, so they end up in lower socioeconomic groups. Uh, so you'll see a lot of homeless people uh, in you know, real urban areas, big cities that suffer from schizophrenia. All right, moving on from the epidemiology, let's talk about the symptoms of schizophrenia. Uh, and they're broken up into positive symptoms and negative symptoms. Positive symptoms are uh, characterized by things like hallucinations, uh, typically auditory, uh, delusions, bizarre behavior, uh, disorganized speech, anything that you know, is in addition to normal uh, behavior. So uh, people without schizophrenia don't typically have hallucinations or delusions or things like that. So that's why it's a positive symptom. Uh, negative symptoms are things that are typically taken away uh, from a normally functioning person. So they'll have, you know, a very flat affect. Uh, they'll have anhedonia, apathy, a lack of interest in socialization or lack of interest in, you know, their normal activities. Uh, and these negative symptoms are more resistant to treatment, whereas positive symptoms uh, typically respond pretty well to uh, antipsychotic treatment. You'll also want to know which uh, dopamine pathway causes the positive and negative symptoms. Uh, so the positive symptoms are caused by uh, alterations in the mesolimbic pathway, whereas the negative symptoms are caused by uh, alterations in the mesocortical dopamine pathway. Very important to remember. All right, let's talk about the different phases of schizophrenia. Uh, it's typically broken up into three distinct phases. Uh, the first one is the prodromal phase, then the psychotic phase, and then finally the residual phase. The uh, prodromal phase is characterized by a decline in functioning uh, that precedes the first uh, psychotic episode. So in this phase, the patient will become, you know, really withdrawn uh, from people, maybe some, you know, irritable uh, sometimes. Uh, they might have a decline in their schoolwork or their, um, their work performance. Uh, and then a newfound interest in something like a religion or uh, it really can be anything but just a real obsession with something. So the pathognomonic patient uh, that comes in in a prodromal phase is someone, you know, that let's say they recently started college. Uh, they were doing pretty well uh, in their early 20s, but uh, then started declining uh, in their schoolwork, became kind of irritable, very withdrawn, uh, and then just has this newfound obsession in something. And then the next phase is the psychotic phase. Uh, that's where you have these delusions, this disorganized thought, uh, your hallucinations, uh, and that lasts for a period of time. And then you move on to the residual phase. Uh, and that 
you know, occurs after you have active psychosis. So the psychosis is somewhat resolving. The, the hallucinations might be a little more mild, same with the delusions, but you're really withdrawn socially and you have a lot more negative symptoms as opposed to the more positive symptoms of the psychotic phase. All right, let's move on to the physical exam findings of patients with schizophrenia. Uh, it's important to note that uh, patient, that, you know, these physical exam findings uh, are not found in every patient, and they're in no way um, diagnostic of schizophrenia. It's just things that you typically see. Uh, so these include disheveled appearance, uh, flat affect, uh, disorganized thought process when you're talking to them and getting a history. Uh, they, you know, may express some auditory hallucinations to you. Uh, they may have a lack of insight uh, into their disease. Uh, you may see them, you know, responding to internal stimuli. It's uh, common phrasing. Uh, but again, you know, these these exam findings are not uh, diagnostic. They're just things that you can see. One thing that's kind of interesting in uh, patients with schizophrenia is they typically have intact orientation, so they know, you know who they are, where they're at, things, things like that. Uh, and then uh, when you do the mini mental status exam or whatever uh, mental status exam that you're doing, uh, they'll typically have intact uh, procedural memory. Patients with schizophrenia also uh, sometimes will exhibit uh, neologisms, uh, which is a word that uh, has meaning to the patient but doesn't have meaning to you. So basically to you it just sounds like nonsense or, or garbled speech, but to them it's a word they you know made up uh, that actually means something to them. Uh, and it's something that I was uh, pimped on that I didn't know about. Uh, moving on to prognostic factors, these are very important uh, when it comes to schizophrenia. Uh, it's important to distinguish between what leads to a better prognosis and which things lead to a worse prognosis. Even with medications, uh, it's important to note that people with schizophrenia, uh, typically about 50% of them uh, will remain significantly impaired after their diagnosis while only about 20 to 30 percent uh, function well in society. But there are specific factors that lead to a better or worse prognosis. Uh, so it's important to memorize probably just one or the other. Uh, as far as better prognosis, the things that lead to better prognosis include uh, later onset, uh, so more in like your 30s or 40s, uh, good social support, positive symptoms, uh, mood symptoms, uh, acute onset, female gender, uh, few relapses, and then good uh, premorbid functioning. Uh, then obviously the things that lead to worse prognosis are the opposite. So early onset, you know, early in your 20s or maybe even your late teens, uh, when you have poor social support, negative symptoms uh, are associated with worse prognosis, uh, family history of schizophrenia, uh, gradual onset of schizophrenia, uh, being a male, uh, having you know multiple relapses uh, in the single year, uh, and then uh, poor uh, premorbid functioning, and then comorbid substance uh, abuse. All right, let's move on to the uh, treatment of schizophrenia. 
Uh, I'm going to discuss the medications that you use, the antipsychotics, uh, as well as the side effects of these medications. I will go into as much detail as you probably need to know to get by, but like I said in the mood disorder uh, podcast, I will do another podcast that specifically talks just about the um, the psychopharmacotherapy of uh, different psychotic disorders. Uh, so in, in that episode, I will go into a little bit more detail, but uh, I'll let you know what you need to know to get by uh, in this episode. So first, starting off with uh, the differences between the first generation and the second generation antipsychotics. So you'll hear those phrases, first generation, also called typical antipsychotic medications, and second generation or atypical antipsychotic medications. Uh, They work primarily in the same way. Um, It's through dopamine antagonism. But there are a few uh, differences between first and second generation antipsychotics. Uh, Second generation, they also work uh, through uh, dopamine, mostly D2 antagonism. uh, But they also work uh, through uh, serotonin receptor uh, antagonization. So they block both uh, dopamine and serotonin receptors. The uh, side effects are also uh, typically different between the first and second generation antipsychotics. For for the first generation antipsychotics, you'll more often see things like the extrapyramidal symptoms, uh, NMS, and then tardive dyskinesia. Whereas the second generation, you still can see uh, extrapyramidal symptoms. They're less common, but uh, they are uh, there. Uh, But you'll more often see things like, uh, for example, in clozapine, you'll see acranulocytosis, um, but the rest of them, uh, it's very common to see metabolic dysfunction like metabolic syndrome. There hasn't been any research that has shown a difference in efficacy uh, between the first and second generation antipsychotics. So you'll really want to tailor your medication choice based on patients' other comorbidities uh, and their risk for uh, certain complications with these antipsychotics. Uh, So let's talk about some of the side effects of these medications. Uh, So the first-generation antipsychotics, they are, you know, the more common ones include haloperidol or haldol, uh, flufenazine, chlorpromazine, and thioridazine, and these can be uh, broken down into high-potency versus low-potency first-generation antipsychotics. Uh, The uh, high-potency first-generation or typical antipsychotics are uh, flufenazine and haloperidol, whereas uh, chlorpromazine and uh, thioridazine are the lower-potency antipsychotic uh, medications. The higher potency uh, antipsychotic medications will obviously uh, treat the uh, positive symptoms quicker and better, uh, but they will also have an increased risk of the extrapyramidal symptoms and NMS. The second generation or atypical antipsychotics, uh, there are a lot of them. Uh, the more common ones that you'll see are uh, aripiprazole or Abilify, clozapine, uh, olanzapine, cotiapine, risperidone, zeprazidone, uh, but there are a whole bunch of them. Uh, you will want to memorize the one that the ones that have specific uh, side effects associated with them. 
So, for example, uh, olanzapine uh, very commonly causes metabolic syndrome, and it's the one that's most associated with metabolic syndrome for the uh, second-generation antipsychotic medication. So you want to remember that. Um, risperidone uh, commonly causes hyperprolactinemia, uh, leading to galactorrhea. You want to remember that as well. Clozapin uh, or clozaril is a medication that is typically reserved for really refractory uh, psychosis or uh, schizophrenia just because it can cause, it's the one that most commonly causes a granulocytosis. So like I said, it's typically reserved for patients who have failed multiple antipsychotic trials and that's something to remember. It is very uh, efficacious for the positive symptoms of schizophrenia, but uh, again, can cause a lot of really bad side effects. So you want to remember that. And pharmacology is kind of hard and it's a lot to remember. Uh, what I always suggest doing is going through uh, sketchy pharmacology. The sketchy farm video uh, on the antipsychotics is really good. That They have two of them. They have like a typical antipsychotic uh, video and an atypical antipsychotic video. So I recommend both of those. Uh, to finish off with schizophrenia, uh, let's talk about uh, neuroleptic malignant syndrome and uh, extrapyramidal symptoms, both very common side effects of antipsychotic use. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome uh, is typically caused from the high-potency first-generation antipsychotics. Uh, it's characterized by a change in your mental status, uh, autonomic instability, like high fever, uh, labile blood pressure, tachycardia, diaphoresis. Uh, lead pipe rigidity is you know, the common buzzword for neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Uh, elevated CK uh, from the breakdown of your muscles. Uh, leukocytosis and metabolic acidosis. Uh, your reflexes will also be decreased, uh, which can help you distinguish NMS uh, from serotonin syndrome. Uh, NMS is a medical emergency. Uh, the treatment for NMS is withdrawal of all antipsychotic medications. Uh, typically, whenever you see that on a test as an answer, uh, just withdrawing the medication uh, is going to be the one to choose. And then for NMS, it's really just uh, symptom-based treatment uh, other than the withdrawal of the medication. And uh, patients who have a history of NMS uh, can you know continue to get NMS periodically throughout their lifetime. Like I said, it's less common with the atypical antipsychotics, so typically they'll be switched from something like Haldol over to a second-generation antipsychotic like uh, Zeprazidone or something like that um, to minimize the risk of future episodes of NMS. As far as uh, the extrapyramidal symptoms of uh, antipsychotic use, uh, the typical order that you will see includes uh, dystonia, akathisia, Parkinsonism, and tardive dyskinesia. And uh, I had a resident teach me the mnemonic ADAPT, uh, which helps me remember kind of the order of these symptoms. So uh, AD stands for acute dystonia, and then A, akathisia. Uh, P, uh, Parkinsonism, and then T, tardive dyskinesia. Uh, acute dystonia uh, is characterized by spasms of uh, different muscles like your face, your neck, or your tongue. Uh, very commonly causes uh, neck spasms, also known as torticollis. 
And you'll want to treat that with uh, benztropine or another anticholinergic. Akathisia is uh, characterized by being really restless, being unable to just hold still in one area. You just have this constant urge uh, or need to move around. Uh, and it's uh, treated typically with a, a benzodiazepine and a beta blocker such as propranolol. Parkinism or pseudoparkinism in this case uh, you know, is characterized by all the classic symptoms of Parkinsonism such as bradykinesia, rigidity, mass-like facies, cogn- wheel rigidity, uh, and uh, your tremors. And that is typically treated uh, with benztropine. And then tardive dyskinesia, uh, it's characterized by these choreoathetoid movements, uh, typically seen in your face, tongue, uh, very often lip smacking, things like that. And there's not really a great treatment for it. Uh, the treatment answer that you'll want to choose is to you know, withdraw the medication uh, and consider switching to an atypical antipsychotic uh, that less commonly causes extrapyramidal symptoms. Uh, There are some newer medications, these VMAT2 inhibitors like valbenzene uh, that you can try. You can try benzodiazepines, things like that. But um, the newer medications uh, won't be tested like on the exam or anything like that. So um, the thing you need to remember is tardive dyskinesia is typically irreversible. Uh, The reason why they're not on tests is because they're very new. And the um, efficacy is somewhat in question. All right. And the last side effect that I want to talk about with these uh, antipsychotics is prolonged QT. Uh, Typically, uh, you'll see patients when they first start an antipsychotic or even beforehand, uh, they'll have an EKG and then they'll have EKGs periodically throughout uh, their hospitalization. And that's just the check the the QT because all these uh, typical and atypical antipsychotics can cause prolonged QTC. Uh, And what you want to look for is a a QTC of less than 500 uh, means that they're okay and you can kind of continue their antipsychotic. But if it's getting any more than 500, you want to, you know, be really careful and uh, look out for things uh, that could worsen this prolonged QT and cause... uh, arrhythmias, uh, such as uh, torsades. All right, that was a lot on schizophrenia, um, but it's a very important and very common disorder uh, that you'll see. Uh, Schizophreniform is the next one that I want to talk about. Uh, Schizophreniform, very similar to schizophrenia. The only difference really is the time. So like I said, schizophrenia, you have to have some symptoms uh, for at least six months to make the diagnosis. Whereas with schizophreniform, you have to have symptoms that last between one month and six months. So like any diagnosis in psychiatry, the timing is super important. As far as the prognosis goes, uh, about a third of patients completely recover uh, and don't progress to schizophrenia, but uh, the majority of them do, about two-thirds progress to either schizoaffective disorder or schizophrenia. The treatment is really the same uh, as schizophrenia. You know, you have a course of antipsychotics. You know, sometimes they'll do like a shorter course, like a six-month trial course of antipsychotics, uh, and then supportive psychotherapy, and then hospitalization if necessary. Uh, but uh, the medications are the same. Brief psychotic disorder is similar to schizophrenia and uh, schizophreniform uh, disorder, and 
it is characterized by these same symptoms as schizophrenia, uh, but these symptoms last anywhere from one day to one month. Uh, and then before they hit a month, uh, they resolve and uh, return to a normal level of functioning. This is a fairly rare diagnosis to make just because sometimes it can be hard to pick up on these uh, these symptoms of psychosis uh, early on. Uh, and typically, you know, they last for a lot more than one month, so they'd be diagnosed with something like schizophreniform or schizophrenia. Um, it is typically caused... Uh, as a reaction uh, to an extreme stressor, uh, such as you know bereavement or some kind of assault. The brief psychotic disorder has a high rate of relapse, um, but uh, if you truly diagnose someone and they truly meet the criteria of brief psychotic disorder, uh, they usually recover. Uh, treatments, you know, a brief hospitalization, maybe a course of antipsychotics for their psychosis or benzos for their agitation, um, but it has a really good uh, prognosis compared to schizophrenia and schizophreniform. All right, let's talk about delusional disorder. Uh, in order to be diagnosed with delusional disorder, uh, according to the DSM-5 criteria, you have to have one or more delusions for at least one month. Uh, you do not meet the criteria for schizophrenia. Your functioning in life is not significantly impaired, and your behavior is not obviously bizarre. Uh, there, there are different types of delusions uh, that patients have. Uh, there are, for example, the aromatic type, uh, where you have this delusion that another person is in love with you. Uh, grandiose type of delusion, uh, delusion that you have some sort of great talent uh, or are a great uh, person. The somatic type, where you have these physical delusions of, uh, of impaired health. Uh, persecutory type, you know, delusions that you're being persecuted. Uh, jealous type, or delusions of unfaithfulness of, of a spouse uh, or significant other. Uh, and then mixed type, where you just have more than one of these types of delusions. So it's a very interesting disorder. Uh, basically, you have these delusions, these fixed false beliefs, uh, but they don't lead to abnormal behavior or your life, your functioning in life is not significantly impaired, um, but you still have this false belief that affects you in some way. The prognosis for patients with delusional disorder, uh, about 50% will recover, 50% uh, won't. Uh, it's often treated with antipsychotic medications, um, despite there not being a lot of great evidence for it, uh, and then supportive therapy. All right, you're on the home stretch here. Thanks for sticking with me. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about and the last thing I want to talk about uh, is bipolar disorder. So bipolar disorder uh, may, be, may sound like kind of a, a weird one to group with schizophrenia, uh, but I kind of grouped it this way because I had two different psychiatry rotations. I had one that was a it was an involuntary inpatient um, uh, psychiatry rotation, and uh, that's where I saw all of the schizophrenia and bipolar disorder people with you know really severe mania. And then I also had a voluntary uh, inpatient rotation, and that's the one where I typically more saw the, the mood disorders like the depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and whatnot. So that's why I kind of broke it up that way. All right, so let's talk about mania in general. 
Uh, mania is a distinct period of time where you have an abnormally and persistently elevated or irritable mood. Uh, and typically when you think of mania, kind of classically, you think of someone that you know, has this really elevated mood, you know, is very goal-directed, um, just wants to do a whole bunch of things and they feel great. Um, but I had a resident who talked to me about it and he really emphasized that, uh, that mania can just be presenting with you know, irritable mood, not necessarily you know, this elevated mood. So that's something really important to remember. Uh, it can also present with, like I said, increased goal-directed activity, increased energy, uh, and it has to last at least one week to qualify for mania. All right, so the DSM uh, definition of mania, you have to have at least three of the following that I'll list off, uh, and four if their mood is just irritable and not you know, elevated or uh, expansive. And the first one is distractibility, uh, then inflated self-esteem or grandiosity, increased in goal-directed activity or psychomotor agitation, decreased need for sleep, flight of ideas or racing thoughts, Uh, they're more talkative than usual or they have really pressured speech, and then finally excessive involvement in pleasurable activities that have a high risk of negative consequences like going on shopping sprees, uh, sexual indiscretions, gambling, things like that. Uh, And these can be remembered uh, by the mnemonic DIGFAST. I'm sure you've heard of it. Uh, D is for distractibility, insomnia, grandiosity, flight of ideas, agitation or activity, speech, and thoughtlessness. So that's a manic episode. Uh, A hypomanic episode is similar to a manic episode, but you can think of it as just being not quite as extreme. So you'll have similar symptoms, but they only need to last at least four days instead of seven. And then you won't see a marked impairment in their social or occupational functioning. Uh, In mania, you know, You'll also see some of these psychotic features, uh, whereas in hypomania, uh, you will not. The biggest distinguisher, for me at least, between mania and hypomania is hospitalization. If someone has a true manic episode, you need to hospitalize them uh, to prevent harm to themselves or harm to other people, whereas with hypomania, uh, they do not require hospitalization. All right, Uh, let's get into bipolar disorder now. Uh, bipolar disorder is broken down into bipolar one and bipolar two. Uh, and then there's another disorder that's similar that I'll talk about called cyclothymic disorder. Uh, bipolar one disorder involves episodes of mania and of major depression, but it's important to note that for the diagnosis of bipolar disorder, bipolar one disorder, you don't need to have episodes of major depression. If you have an episode of true mania, a true manic episode, then you qualify for the diagnosis of bipolar 1 disorder. So a patient may only have uh, recurrent episodes of mania, and then they return to kind of a a euthymic uh, state, and they still qualify for bipolar 1. Bipolar disorder is fairly common, prevalence of about 1 to 2%. Uh, It has a very high genetic link, uh, very common for multiple people in the family to be diagnosed with bipolar 1. 
the concordance rate, for example, for monozygotic twins is about 50%, compared to dizygotic twins, about 10%. As far as the prognosis for bipolar disorder, uh, these manic episodes, if they're untreated, they can last anywhere from, you know, a couple weeks to a couple months. Uh, very common to have, you know, a cycling where you have a period of uh, mania and then you become euthymic or maybe go into depression and then go back into mania and back into euthymia and then depression again. Very commonly, you'll have a repeat manic episode uh, within five years from your first manic episode. Bipolar disorder has a fairly poor prognosis if left untreated, and many patients with bipolar disorder attempt or complete suicide. Treatment for bipolar disorder includes uh, a couple different medications. The most common one that you'll hear is lithium. Now, uh, lithium has a lot of side effects that you'll want to remember, um, and lithium toxicity you will probably see in the hospital. But some of the more common side effects of lithium use include uh, GI disturbances like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, uh, tremors, you can even see seizures, hypothyroidism, uh, very common. Uh, you can have uh, polyuria, uh, which is often associated with the nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, also very common, very commonly tested, uh, and then cardiac arrhythmias. You'll also want to remember Epstein's anomaly, uh, which is uh, atrialization of the right ventricle, which is a common birth defect uh, as a result of the mother using uh, lithium during pregnancy. Another important fact about lithium is it's one of the two medications that has been proven to reduce suicide risk. Uh, these include lithium and clozapine, very common uh, pimping question. The other medications for treatment of bipolar disorder uh, include uh, mood stabilizers, and the most common mood stabilizers are actually uh, anticonvulsants. And these include things like valproate or valproic acid and uh, carbamazepine. And then uh, you also sometimes treat uh, bipolar disorder with atypical antipsychotics, uh, and they are uh, efficacious both, both as monotherapy and adjunct therapy for acute mania uh, and patients who have you know a lot of side effects to lithium will often be switched over to a atypical antipsychotic. A very important thing to remember with bipolar disorder is that you do not want to give these patients antidepressants. Uh, anti antidepressants uh, are very common to cause uh, mania in patients with bipolar disorder. So if there's any thought that a patient may have bipolar disorder, may have a history of mania, you do not want to have them on antidepressants even if they have uh, major depressive episodes. Uh, these patients are instead treated with things like uh, mood stabilizers. Bipolar 2 disorder is similar to bipolar 1 disorder, uh, but in bipolar 2 disorder, Patients never quite get uh, to mania. They have hypomanic episodes. Uh, so to meet the diagnosis uh, criteria for bipolar 2 disorder, a patient has to have at least one hypomanic episode and then uh, episodes of major depression. 
Other than that, uh, it's pretty similar to uh, bipolar 1 disorder, uh, and it's treated the same way. But you will want to remember the differences between bipolar and bipolar, bipolar 1 and bipolar 2 disorder because you will be asked about it on wards and on the exam. And the final disorder that I want to talk about is cyclothymic disorder. In cyclothymic disorder, you have alternating periods of hypomania and mild to moderate depression. So I like to think of cyclothymic disorder basically as bipolar 3. So basically, with a bipolar type 1, you have manic episodes, full-blown manic episodes. In bipolar 2, you have hypomanic episodes, so you don't quite reach uh, the manic episodes of bipolar 1, but you also have to have episodes of major depression. Whereas cyclothymic disorder, you have alternating periods of hypomania, so you don't quite become manic, you become hypomanic, and then periods with moderate uh, to mild depression. It's important, though, that these patients do not have uh, major depressive episodes and they don't meet the criteria for a major depressive episode. Otherwise, uh, they would be you know, bipolar 2 disorder. Um, the, these patients, uh, kind of similar to persistent depressive disorder, these patients must have never been symptom-free for greater than two months uh, during the past two years. So basically to qualify for cyclothymic disorder, you have to have periods, alternating periods of hypomania and mild to moderate depressive symptoms uh, for two years and not being symptom-free for greater than two months at a time. Uh, cyclothymic disorder is chronic, uh, ha- has a chronic course. Uh, approximately a third of patients will eventually, though, develop bipolar 1 or bipolar 2 disorder. It's treated uh, similar to bipolar 2 disorder with antimanic agents such as mood stabilizers or second-generation antipsychotics. All right, everyone, that was a lot, uh, but you know, I think we have gone over everything that you need to know for psychotic disorders, uh, everything you need to know for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, as well as cyclothymic disorder. Uh, the big things to remember for uh, schizophrenia and the related disorders to schizophrenia is the timing. So anything more than six months is schizophrenia. Anything between one month and six months is schizophreniform. And then anything between one day and one month is brief psychotic disorder. The important thing to remember for bipolar disorder is in bipolar one, you have manic episodes. That's all you need to have is a manic episode. Bipolar two, you have hypomanic episodes and a major depressive episode. For cyclothymic disorder, you have hypomanic episodes and almost like uh, hypodepressive episodes where you don't quite meet the diagnosis of a major depressive episode. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for tuning into the podcast today. I know it was a long one, but uh, you all did great. Good luck on your rotations. Good luck on everything, and we'll see you next time.